Welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or, or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and today we'll be taking a more in-depth look at the report that was published recently by the Irish Home Builders Association. And that report, you may recall, um, actually calls for a minimum of 36,000 new homes annually for the next two decades. So joining me remotely to discuss this is James Benson, Director of Irish Home Builders Association. James, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for the invitation, Carol. Um, no, I'm, I'm delighted you were in a position to join us and talk us through this report because um, certainly as is customary at this time of the year, first week of September, there's a slew of new industry reports and each one obviously um, has merit and, and gives us new insights into the market. Um, but the Irish Home Builders Association report is probably one of the most comprehensive that we've seen since COVID-19 hit. So um, I, I really want to take some time to kind of go through the figures and look beyond the headlines maybe that were published over the last week or 10 days. Um, so first of all, you might just put the report in context for us. Uh, how did this come about? Yeah, I think you're right, Carol. It's it's a busy time for the full industry. And I think the, the residential sector itself um, is no different than that. It's a very complex sector. Um, and it's grown increasingly complex over the last number of years. The report itself, we wanted to get an in-depth analysis on housing affordability and supply. Now, we've seen a lot of different reports over the last number of years, even within this area. But none, I think, that get into forensic analysis that this report actually does and to get down and identify the root causes. So this report itself does that. It comprehensively examines where our root causes are currently within the system, where the shortfalls might be. Um, and key for us was that a priority would be that we would put out a set of practical solutions in both the short and the medium term. And those practical solutions will range from where we would require state investment, or it could be administrative changes within the current system that could bring efficiencies in, in a very quick um, and within the short term. Um, really, we, we need to be seeing it to be building up to 36,000 houses on average over the next two decades, as you've, as you've rightly said earlier on. And it's important that this is done across all tenure types, that we're going to see increased numbers on social homes, affordable homes, private um, and rental. So we need to be looking at the full spectrum of, of housing tenure types. Um, and I think this report goes a long, long way to identifying the different areas in this. Like the, the issues are clear, they're there. We've issues with affordability and support supply. Um, affordability itself probably remains to be the key issues. We see many young families and couples on average incomes that are just locked out of the market at the moment. Um, and there's, there's a structural issue there if people are paying a high, a high average rent per month if they could secure a mortgage far in far less than that, um, but they just can't get onto that because the current system just doesn't allow for it. Costs yeah. of construction continue to be a major factor in delivery. Um, and again, as I said, while the residential sector itself is complex, the planning system is probably very onerous. And at the moment, there's some sensitive steps that could need review and bring efficiencies into the system in, in the short term. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, at the top of the interview, I described this as one of the most comprehensive and you've really touched on it there. Uh, this report actually touches on everything from um, uh, smaller administrative things in the planning process to actual reform of the planning process, which we've we've heard talked about, obviously, in it, but there's been a very piecemeal approach to it over the past decade. But you go right through to um, 
dealing with the, in terms of the root causes of affordability, you know, it's not just in terms of affordability of the market. It's actually the ability of uh, first-time buyers and home buyers to pay uh, because you've actually targeted things like high rents. So let's let's take a step back and because affordability, we seem to, it's something that we seem to talk about almost weekly on the show here. And yet, you know, there there is no, I, I think the problem is there is no one answer to affordability. So let's go back and see if we can actually um, at least get a better understanding of the root causes. So in terms of the root causes of affordability, this, your uh, report was done in association with EY and, and DKM. So in terms of investigating the root causes, it wasn't industry led as in it was hmm. independently assessed so where where did those re- the root causes what were the ones that really jumped out in this report well i think as again you, you've rightly said there carol there this is very complex but the, i suppose a, a, an extra challenge for this is that there isn't going to be a silver bullet solution to this and that's why we had to look at all the different areas so we looked at densities planning guidelines reducing the cost of construction servicing of land is a key area delivery on state-owned lands, down to regulation, down to potential tax um, incentives that could be there. Um, and very importantly, each um, potential schemes for supporting affordability and increase in housing supply. And there are two key areas, one for supporting affordability and one looking at increase in housing supply. If, for us, we needed to put forward a set of um, solutions and there have to be practical solutions that can be achieved um, and will benefit the consumer because this is what we're looking to try and do here to benefit and enable the consumer to get those onto the property market, whether that be the first time buyer or a new home purchaser. And the new home purchaser is something we don't often hear enough about. You know, you could have had someone in the past who could have been, you know, stuck in negative equity they could be now renting a property and they could be looking to purchase a new home and they've been put in a very difficult situation through no fault of their own um so i suppose where i'm going with the, the silver bullet analogy is we need to see a mix of the different proposals put forward and we need to see them put in place over time and then when we see enough of the pieces of the jigsaw put in the right places we'll start to see greater clarity and progress being made um to 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 specifically look at the affordability piece We've identified this for, and we've, we've been speaking about this for, for a number of years and we wanted to get EY to really drill down into, so EY DKM would come in and they really drill down into where the, the issues here. And they've raised some very, very interesting um, um, information around this from looking at the deposits. We've seen a lot of the urban areas, you could be talking up to 15 years for some couples on average incomes to actually raise the required deposit for a particular property. Now that takes into account the average rent that they're paying, their average income and their cost of living. Um, if we go to some of the more rural or outside of the greater Dublin areas or into the regional areas, it could be down as low as two to three years. But when we look at 15 years, that's, that, that puts forward a very systematic problem. Um, probably you could call it a failure in the system if that's what it's taken. Yeah, well, um, I, I was when just when you talk about those ranges of years, I think it's really important for to to put them in context because I I think that this might have come as a bit of a shock to people who were hearing it for the first time. So you know, we saw in uh, cities like Kilkenny, it was taking on average one point seven years to save for a deposit, which doesn't seem like a lot. That seems quite reasonable. Um, but then you take a look at Galway City, and it's fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, I well, that's if, shocking. If if you take into a house, if you take into account household expenditure, if mm. you take the rate of um, what people are paying in rent into into account, and if you take in the medium average income for a couple um, or a single person within those areas, you, you know you work out the stats, and that's what's and you take in the medium house prices in that particular area. 
that's what's leading to because you'll have your 10% deposit requirement so we'll have that figure for that there you take into, as I say take into account the rent the expenditure um, and it starts breaking down now if we look at as you rightly say there and say Dublin for instance you're talking about an average of 2,100 um, rent repayments in any given month mm. um, nationally you're probably talking in excess of 1,400 if someone can secure a mortgage for 1,700 euro for instance in Dublin that means that one they're onto the property ladder they won't be a future state dependence you could have potentially three to four hundred in extra exchequer expenditure that could happen in any given month. So there's a lot of benefits here for trying to get people um, onto the home ownership or onto the property ladder. Um, and it's right to say it, it's shocking to see that's 15 years in some cases, but even down to six, seven years in certain cases. That's still well, very difficult for people. And some people are reliant on, I suppose, the help of their parents in some cases where they can, where they can. And others just don't have that option. You know, it's not there for them. So it puts them in a de- very difficult situation. You know, absolutely. And in fact, only in the in the Sunday papers the, this past weekend, you know, the, there was a feature on how, you know, dipping into the bank of mom and dad yeah. isn't always a good idea for so many reasons. And that there's there's a longer term impact, actually, on the entire family there as well in terms of wealth creation. But just one of the things that really um, hit home here, because this is a very comprehensive um it's a very comprehensive report and it takes in things that are outside of the control of your members you know the the people who are actually building homes in Ireland so i think that it's worth I suppose, repeating, uh, when we get into the issues of affordability, it inevitably the conversation moves to construction costs. And mm. I think it's really important when we're discussing construction costs that we separate those that are within the control of home builders and those that are outside of the control of home builders. Because I think that that's where um, the, the distinction between those two is where the potential to solve the problem is going to be. So in terms of the real cost of construction, you know, what proportion of what it's taken to deliver a home today, an average home today, what proportion of that is actually uh, in the under the direct control of the home builder? Yeah, so as you've touched on a number of interesting points there, Carol. I suppose just maybe to address them in, in the particular order that they came up there before we jump off um, the affordability issue itself, before we go into the costs. I suppose the bank of mum and dad, as you rightly said, is 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 just not an option for some people. Mm. Um, and once, one of the measures that we looked at on supporting affordability is that potentially on that, you take into account someone's rental history into account. That's not something that's there at the moment. But as I rightly said, if you're paying in excess per month of what you would in rent for your mortgage repayment and you've done so for uh, a, an extended period of up to maybe potentially five years, you're demonstrating that you can afford a mortgage there. So um, looking at someone's rental history um, and, and looking at the discretion limits there for first time buyers would have been something that has been a product of this report that we would see as one potential solution and only one potential mm-hmm. solution that goes with a number of others. Um introducing a shared equity scheme and extending the help to buy our other two key areas. Probably what's worth noting here is that there is a quite a difference between affordable homes and affordability. And um, when we look at affordable homes, it's probably more homes delivered through social schemes that people would be more familiar with. But the whole issue of affordability is someone's ability to be able to get onto the property ladder. That is affected by their ability to secure a mortgage or down right initially to save up for the deposit or to secure a mortgage depending on what their combined income might be. Um, to come back to your, 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 your last question around the cost of construction. Really, I suppose, to break down the bricks and mortar um, in delivery of any given home um, 
it's 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 less than fifty percent. You could your range between forty three to forty seven percent, depending on what report we look at or what evidence is there in the market. But they all come in around that different that that same range. Um, so we're looking at less than half of the cost of delivery of a home is down to the bricks and mortar. Um, and again, that's where the only certainty currently is within the system as well. If you ask any of our own members, and our own members are probably delivering up to eighty five percent of all new homes on any given year. And that's across all areas, whether it be rental, private or social. Um, they can probably deliver home in 16 weeks from the time they pull a foundation to having the key ready to turn in the door to sell the unit. But that's where the certainty ends. Um, the design element that goes along with it, the planning process itself and the conveyance and all very complex and a lot of different complex steps within those processes that add to uncertainty and uncertainty adds to costs and delays. Um, so we need to bring in certainty and speed when into the different systems and particularly into the planning element itself. Again, other areas you're quickly talking up on to, again, depending on what we've we split up the figures here, but at, at a minimum, you're looking at potentially 25 to 30 percent of the cost of any given home goes directly or indirectly to the state, whether we look at vast taxes, contributions or levies. Um, that's all outside of the control. So what's that figure? Builders. What's that figure you mentioned? Up to 37 percent in some cases and as low as maybe potentially and not even as low, but 20 percent in some cases. Um, but that's very, still very significant and that's a major cost in any given home. But that'll go directly or indirectly to the state. And I said it's broken down, as I've said, it's broken down between vast contributions, taxes and levies. And contributions are very important because they really go back to the local authority in any given area for the betterment of the entire community. But unfortunately, if that betterment of the entire community is for the upgrade of infrastructure where we haven't seen investment over the last number of years, that betterment levy is almost put on the new home builder or the new home purchaser. So when mm -hmm. the home builder comes into a particular area, they'll have to look at the costs across the stream. If they need to bring services into a particular area, they're going to have to pay for those services as it currently stands under the current policies. That cost is going to go into the new home. So in essence, you're going to have the first time buyer or the new home purchaser within that area paying for it through their new home. But they're paying for it for the betterment of everyone within the area because you're going to see an infrastructural upgrade within that particular area, whether it be for roads or for or for lighting or whether it be down to water services, which is a big which is a big challenge currently at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, the water connection seems to be something that mm. ha has been identified as a problem and it's an infrastructural problem over the past three to four years. And yet there doesn't seem to be um, any speeding up this process. And I think you've really identified there that the key to a lot of this is certainty and speed, because in fact, if we compare home building to manufacturer or any other commercial endeavour, then we know that there has to be a level of certainty, consistency, speed. And this is where we've seen kind of the digital transformation and um, we've seen the digitization of certain steps of the process. So when you pinpoint reform of the planning, mm. um, you know, I, I see that as somewhere that's actually starting to digitise. So I, and, and actually, I think the last six months have really helped that. They've accelerated and they've really focused on the importance of it. But you've you've looked at right from a design conveyancing um, uh, uh, and planning and we see the planning starting to digitise, maybe not as quick as we'd like it. We can see, we know the design is definitely um, starting to digitise with the increase in BIM and, and other technologies. But you've touched on conveyancing. That's still a complete laggard in the industry. So, you know, and that's one that we never hear as contributing to delays and therefore costs in the whole building sector. 
is that is that a, a, a real or a tangible issue? Well, it's definitely an issue. And again, it's contributory to all the other issues. So, you know, without we need to be seeing efficiencies across a full string of, of, of different areas. And conveyancing is another big, a big step beyond it. You know, many years ago, people probably thought how long it took to build a house again, just a bricks and mortar site. And that definites are still there. The conveyancing is a very complicated area as well. Um, and there's a lot of work involved in it. When we talk about streamlining the planning system, again, we've looked at this from, from the very outset right through to the end of the conveyance. And we need mm. a root and branch review here on it. As you've rightly said, the last number of months when we saw the impact of COVID, we need an online system across the board or else we're going to have delays and unnecessary delays. We've probably first heard this muted back in 2017 where we were going to see digitalization of the plan system. It is coming. It just needs to come. Uh, uh, there's all the more pressure on it to come um, for what we're, we're likely to see in the next 12 months because we are likely to see a continuation or disruption um, to the whole delivery process. And when we looked at the numbers over the last couple of months, um, something we didn't touch on, we've seen a high level, a high level of completions, but we've seen a very significant drop in the number of commencements. And that will have impact in the next 24 months when we won't get back to the numbers or the levels that we need to get to. But it's not, it's not all, again, this report very much outlines, it's not all about a direct cost or direct investment that needs to be made that will be required in a number of the proposals put forward, um, whether it be in the short term or long term. Um, and just in the short term alone, we've put forward in excess of 30 different proposals. But if you look at the planning system, one particular element where it does cause delays at the moment, and it could have a relatively straightforward fix without any uh, direct cost on it. In the, in, the, in the budget put forward a number of years back, it was 2018 at this point in time, um, after granted planning permission, um, you will be if, if you're granted planning permission, you will get a set of obligations and conditions put upon you as part of that granted planning permission. The home builder will be required to go back with a response to how they're going to comply with those new obligations. And then in turn, the planning authority will review those um, proposals and come back with a response to accept or reject. Um, unfortunately, there's no default time period at the moment for that response. And that can take that could take many months. If we had a default period, um, which was proposed in the budget a number of years back, which would just require a commencement order to be signed, it would again bring efficiencies into that and we would have a, a, a deadline there and you'd actually have a period that you could look at and you would know something's going to happen in that particular time frame, whether it be eight weeks or up to 12 weeks. But again, it would bring certainty into the system, it would bring efficiencies and then you have the benefits of that that transpire right down to the, to the home purchaser. Yeah, I see all of these things, you know, you mentioned there that there's up to 30 proposals and they all make sense. Um, as you rightly said, you know, none of them are necessarily standalone solutions that, you know, they need to work in a more uh, holistic way. But one of the things you touched on there, and it was a feature actually in the broadsheets only over the past weekend. So I'd love maybe if you could take a few moments to explain it. And that's the new state equity loan scheme. Yeah, well, what, 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 again, I suppose we've we've clearly outlined there, and, and you've seen, for there, it's probably uh, referred to over in, in every conversation around housing. There's mm. an affordability out, issue out there, and it's not a supply issue; it's an affordability issue. So we see the average, average young families and average average income combined income couples where they're just currently locked out of the market, based on average house prices. And as we said earlier on, there's a, a number of factors that bring the cost of delivery into the air and outside of the control of the home builder. Um, they, people just can't afford to get onto the property ladder. Um, you need to be in excess of 90,000 combined income to be able to secure 
to secure a mortgage in the greater Dublin area. Um, it could be slightly lower than that when you get into the national figures. Um, unfortunately, based on people's current incomes and the three, three, three and a half times multiplier under the current central bank rules, they can't just secure the required mortgage lending that they, that, that, that they need. What we would propose here would be a state-backed shared equity scheme um, where the state, depending on the house type or whether it be a house or an apartment type, depending on where the location may be, whether it would be in Dublin or the greater Dublin area or into, into regional locations, there would be a different price cap. Um, but the state would take 25 or 30% equity share into the property. Um, what that would mean is that the average couple or the young family then would be able to secure the necessary mortgage to get themselves onto the property ladder. This would be a loan which would be repaid back over the lifetime of the home or the property. Um, so it's not a direct cost in any given year. Um, as you rightly said, it was reported over the weekend that there could be an initial cost of 200 million. Um, but it's very important to note that this would be 200 million if you saw the maximum equity share taken by the state um, up to two and a half thousand homes, new homes. Uh, but again, it would be over the lifetime of the property. So that 200 million wouldn't be a direct, uh, an, an initial direct cost in any given year. Um, and again, it is repaid. So it's only a loan. It's not a grant like some of the potential other schemes that have been muted. Yeah. Uh, but for buyers, just just so I can understand it, uh, for say first time buyers, this is I, I think the figure report was an average of eighty five thousand. Mm. So this is on top of the already approved mortgage. Well, this would be included in someone's mortgage. So what we've very we've seen a very similar scheme. It's called the Help to Buy um, Home Ownership mm. Scheme in the UK. Now it's 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 quite different to our own Help to Buy Scheme, which yeah. only looks at someone's deposit. What we would like to see here, we want, don't want to be too prescriptive of how it actually would happen. But in essence, someone would go, they would be approved to um, receive the state equity where they could get up to 25%. But they would go through the normal lending process where they would go, they've been approved up to 25% and they would secure their normal mortgage. It's just that those payments would be split. Potentially, they could have relief on the state equity um, portion of the mortgage for a number of years until their circumstances improve. So it's not an additional 85000 of a loan. 85000 would refer to the average 25% stake in the national house price of up to 335000 So a normal young couple or the average couple on a combined income would just go in and try and secure their mortgage as, as normal. It's just that that state equity would bring them up to the levels that they would need to be able to comply with the current central bank rulings, but be able to secure the average house prices. And what's important to note here is that there would be a cap on, on uh, proposed as well as part of all these. So if we were looking at potentially in nationally or around the country, you could be looking at average house prices of capped at 335,000. Um, and then equally for an apartment in a particular area, the same area, you could be looking at 380,000 because the cost of apartment delivery is more expensive. If we go into the greater Dublin area, you could be potentially looking at 350,000 for a cap for a house um, and an equally increased cap then for an apartment. So that cap in itself would secure as well. So we're not going to see unnecessary house price inflation as well that would go along with the scheme. OK, can I read out just um, the, the uh, response to this by the Sinn Féin <laughs> spokesperson, Owen O'Brien? And uh, now this is a direct quote from him, you know, when he, he called the scheme flawed and then he quote, uh, the problem with this proposition is that it locks in high prices indefinitely. It means that modest income working uh, people are still buying overpriced homes at €400,000. You can build exactly the same unit and sell it for 250000 if you're doing it using the affordable public sector model. So what, uh, I suppose, how would you respond to that? 
Well, again, the price cap Portugal ensures that you're not going to have unnecessary um, price inflation that's going there. I suppose the issue here isn't about, you know, home builders pocketing any money on it. The issue is about um, can we put measures in place that will increase supply and affordability um, and ultimately that would enable the average couple. And that's what this scheme does. It enables them to be able to get onto the property ladder. The reason we're seeing such a, a low number of supply as well there is because the realisable demand, there's a great demand out there in the country at the moment. You know, home ownership, the aspirations of home ownership are as strong as ever but unfortunately the realizable demand so we'll have a number of people that want a new home the realizable demand is those that can actually afford to get a new home and that's quite different so supply will match that but we don't have the supply because we can't have we don't have the necessary cohort of people that can afford homes this scheme itself would allow for that to happen what's very um important to know for people is the, the delivery of homes for two hundred and fifty thousand through a social or public model those models in the delivery of homes don't take into account the cost of land. Um, they don't take into account the professional fees and a number of other elements that actually takes. And I presume the cost of, of finance would be far reduced. Cost of finance, again, is another huge element. If we look at finance, you need to be able to, you need to have a profit margin of uh, 10% on a minimum across all projects to allow for, to get to secure finance in any particular area. So the cost of finance is another uh, item that was reported in the report that needs to be looked at. And we need to see a greater um, a greater share of competitive lending um, and funds utilised through, whether it be the different financial institutions or Home Building Finance Ireland that would potentially lend out, and they do lend out very effectively to different parts of the country. We're some of the institutional um, the, the normal pillar banks don't actually go to um, but I think again in a, another important element on the social delivery that's not looked at there is those other costs as I've said that aren't necessarily put into that 250,000 figure land contributions and the servicing that it goes into that those contributions aren't taken into account when you look at uh, social delivery through those models because the contributions are waived in a lot of those cases mm-hmm. but equally the maintenance when you have a lot a large number of social uh, units delivered they, they do they need to be maintained over a period of time and that is also needs to be taken into account and that's not taken into account in that 250,000. It does take quite a maintenance figure um, over any any given year so if it's the 20 year term of, 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 of a property or 50 years depending on what the case may be there is that significant cost that should be taken into account and sometimes they're the areas that are forgotten and are forgotten about when we look at the, the cost of social delivery. So it's just important that we measure apples with apples and, and yeah. oranges with oranges in those cases. I Look absolutely and before we let to go one thing um i would like to to get your your comment on there is um you know you referred there to one of your proposals refers to more efficient delivery on state owned land um and obviously over the past two years you know we can see with the introduction of land development agency you know are you starting to see are you hopeful that there's positive change actually underway there I think there is. Um, and it's very, we need to see delivery on state-owned lands. It's as simple as that. We need to see delivery across all types of lands. Um, I think we, we might not see the fruits of that, the real fruits of that for another um, potentially 24 months, um, given the complications that go along with it. Um, and there's still regulation that needs to go along with the, the, the LDA that would allow for them to, you know, properly be able to deliver. They need to be empowered to be able to do so. Um, but again, we would back anyone that can provide delivery on state-owned lands. Again, it, it's worth noting that... Anyone delivering through that social model on state-owned lands will fail. Will, will face the same issues and challenges that the private industry deliver. Um, and those that delivery on the state-owned lands, through whether it be through social, um, turnkey projects or whatever the case may be, again, it's worth reminding people 
that is deliveries all through the private sector anyway. So the private sector is delivering on those units, whether it be social turnkey or private scheme developments or, or rental developments. Um, I think it's more, the programme for government itself recognise that the private sector will be the one responsible for tackling the housing housing issue of affordability and supply. Um, so we're here and, we're, 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 and I know our, our own members are more than willing to help. They just need to be enabled as part of the process as well. Um, when we talk about state-owned delivery, again, you know, we, we need to, we probably something that we didn't look back on over the figures during the conversation and something we might come back to another time. We've seen social delivery at the back end of this year is probably going to look at about 6,000 units. Rental will, will land in at about 2,500 units, one-offs about 3,500. We're only going to see the private sector or the private private homes and delivery of about 5,000 units. So we have seen in recent years an increase in the number of social delivered units mm-hmm. um, and that's now overtaken the private, private delivery of, of homes. Um, so that's something that we need to keep an eye on because we need to see um, delivery across all tenure types um, and equally we need to see mechanisms and schemes put in place that would allow for that delivery. So along with yeah. this report and a number of the proposals that we put forward we will be going to the government and a, uh, and a number of the other stakeholders and we'll be looking for early adoption. They, they've recognised the private industry as an important player in tackling housing supply over the next number of years. We will be going with these proposals and we'll be seeking early adoption of the policies that will put affordability and home ownership back at the heart of the System. Yeah, you know, it, it occurs to me, James, as you say that that if even ten percent of the proposals outlined Home Builders Association report were adopted, we could see a tangible difference uh, almost immediately, as in within the next twelve months. Um, so, again, I suppose the, it, all of these things co- need to come together. It's almost like a jigsaw puzzle, and unfortunately, a really vital corner piece of that has to be political willingness and bravery and. We just don't know. It has been quite a tumultuous start to the to the current government. We don't know is the political willingness and bravery there, but obviously we hope it is. Um, I, I I suppose before we let you go, are you confident that the new government, as it stands, can deliver on? Even ten percent of these measures. I think. I think, as you said, like housing, housing has been was probably the main, um, like one of the top two main election issues back only six months ago, and it probably seems like mm. a lifetime ago at the moment. Mm-hmm. The issues of affordability and supply haven't gone away. Um, I think this current government recognise the 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 issues that are currently there. They recognise the challenges there, and they on they understand the complexity of this, what the residential sector entails, and it is a very complex um, sector at the moment. Um, I think the appetite is there and the willingness is there. Um, it is very difficult to change a system um, but equally I think they recognise some of the policies that are in place there one policy won't be suitable for the entire country um, we need to see different policies that take into account what's looked at, what's required in different areas like planning guidelines and densities need to be reflective of any given location um, and that you're going to see greater delivery if you take into account the uniqueness of any particular given area um, I think the economic benefits um, still for the residential sector are something that needs to be reflected that needs to be taken into account like when you see a, um, an investment of one million um, into the residential sector you're going to see an economic exchequer benefit um, of 1.85 million so there's still a great return there to the to the exchequer you'll see the um, an extra 12 jobs for every one million investment supported so we're seeing sustainability in jobs we're seeing ex- ex- extra money into the exchequer into the revenue all key elements that are very important um, as we go through the, the, the current crisis with COVID-19 um, and again that's only exacerbated the current um, housing affordability and supply crisis that we currently have 
and it hasn't gone away um, and it's going to be something that will need to be tackled over the next number of years um, through various steps and I would advocate that as many of the proposals that we've put forward could be looked at in both the short term and the medium term. We need to have a housing strategy um, and I think this report provides the baseline of what that strategy and how that um, strategy could look over the next number of years. Yeah, James, thank you so much. You're absolutely right. And obviously, we'll hopefully check in with you again in a few months' time to see if there has been adoption and progress, because that's exactly what we need to see for today. We'll leave it there. Thanks again to James Benson, Director of Irish Home Builders Association. We'll take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. I'm now joined remotely by Mark Cronin, Associate Director of Townmore. Mark, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Carol. Albeit over the phone, such as our new reality, we we thought we'd be back in studio this week, but in fact, that's now been pushed out until October. If we had yeah. known, if we had known in January or February that this was going to continue for as long as it had, you know, would would we have would we have made different decisions back in January and February, Mark? Uh, yeah, I suppose we probably would have, but uh, you know, it's uh, hindsight's twenty twenty vision. We're you know, all in uh, uncharted territory at the moment, so we're doing the best we can with it. But you know, we're making do, and thankfully, uh, amongst most industries, we can't complain too much in construction. Yeah, so well, well. you know, that's surprising because construction, like farmers, seem to be people that um, rarely, rarely say they've nothing to complain about. So that's <laughs> I, I'm going to take that as a positive thing <laughs> before we get taken off the air. So, yeah. look, Mark, as I did, as I mentioned there at the top of the interview, you're associate director of Townmore. Um, so just for people that obviously Townmore is a is a well known brand in the construction industry in Ireland. But just for people that may not be familiar, talk to us about Townmore because it's one of the newer brands in Ireland. Uh, it is, I suppose, uh, certainly for where we're situated uh, nationally, I suppose we're a top 20 contractor and we are pretty new in that grouping, albeit, I suppose, since the turn of 2008, uh, that listing has changed dramatically. Uh, mm-hmm. But certainly, I suppose we're around since 2008, so 12 years uh uh, in existence, uh, an interesting time to set up a company, I suppose, but they say the best time to set up is in a recession. And uh, we've gone from strength to strength on the back of it. Uh, currently have circa 100 employees, both professional and delivery, and uh, offices in, uh, we're headquartered in Tullamore, and uh, we have regional offices then in Santry, uh, one down in Mallow and Cork, and one over in London as well. So okay. the operations straddle both sides uh, of, of Ireland and over to the UK as well. Okay, and so 12 years to get into mm. the top 20 contractor in Ireland, yeah. that's, that's a serious feat. Um, you know, you touched on it there that actually, you know, 2008 was absolutely the height of, uh, well, maybe wasn't the height of the chaos, but we were definitely getting into chaotic waters. Sure. Do you think Do you think in some way that actually was a positive for a startup? I, I do think, I, I think not just in construction, but in any given sector, uh, I think it is true to say it's probably easier in some ways to commence or set up in a recessionary time uh, due to your input costs being much lower. I would say it's probably a lot harder now, for example, where we're at at the moment, uh, despite uh, the COVID situation, to, to establish a new company. Um, I mean, every, every construction company across the country uh, regressed and became much, much smaller uh, from 2008, 2009 on. 
And it, uh, fair enough, the, the quantity of opportunity on the ground was less. But if you got any kind of stranglehold in it at all, it wasn't too difficult to kind of grow um, exponentially. And for us, I think like we probably started off with small projects of 200, 300, 400 grand. Um, and then finally, I suppose after three years trading, gone into some public works, educational projects and some healthcare projects uh, and grew from there. And our, our big break was probably more so in the likes of uh, hospitality projects, such as the, the Conrad Hotel refurbishment there. And with bigger names like Aviva and Irish Life, which allowed us to, to propel uh, with bigger names and bigger blue chip clients. But, you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I think timing does does mean a lot, even in mm. terms of access to talent. And yeah. I presume in twenty or two thousand and eight, nine, and ten, these were good opportunities to get some key people. Big time, yeah. And like, look, I suppose for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately, but there was a plethora of people, really good, high quality people in the marketplace, whom I suppose, due to family reasons and otherwise, weren't too keen to to travel abroad if they could avoid it. Um, so we've managed to kind of take on people in those early days, uh, many of whom are still with us today, and uh, create a really strong backbone for the company to progress. Because you're bringing in people with, you know, 10, 20, 30 years experience, uh, and they propel you forward because they're bringing life experience and professional experience that you you couldn't gain should you have, you know, juniors across the board, shall we say. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, I, I suppose one of the other really important things is that Ireland is a very small country and the Irish construction industry is a very small industry. So when it comes to uh, building reputations, the reputation tends to carry from firm to firm as well. So, you know, it, it's always a good thing, you know, in terms of the network. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I that strikes me about Tanmore is that you would be very you'd be very much known as a specialist contractor. So, I mean, in terms of the areas of specialism, have they expanded over the past decade? They surely have. Uh, I suppose our, our specialities uh, came about organically, but we focused and honed in on them and they became our mainstay. So for us at the moment, I suppose specialist areas that we would be well known for would be certainly residential, of which forms a big part of our business. We probably have maybe 400 residential units on the ground at the moment that we're building of various types. And uh, another area would have been hospitality, hotels, which we've delivered quite a few, uh, including the iconic ones in Dublin, such as the Conrad and the Maldron. Uh, we have one, an eight-story one underway in McCart Street and Cork. Uh, now that's an area that most definitely on the back of uh, COVID has suffered dramatically. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, inevitably. But look, uh, I do think that will come back around again and we'll, we'll, we'll keep our foot in the door there. Um, in more recent times, I suppose, we've managed to branch into very specialist areas such as uh, controlled environments. Uh, so the delivery of clean rooms, which is probably as niche as you'd get uh, within Ireland. There's not that many providers. And that includes full design build, ISO 7, ISO 8 clean rooms for the likes of large medtech firms such as uh, BD and uh, GSK uh, and Nipro and the likes. So it's been a very good area for us, a very fruitful area, um, and it's growing steadily year on year with a nice team in place there. So 
Okay, and controlled environments is probably one of the areas, you know, unlike uh, maybe uh, residential or certainly hospitality, mm. we don't we don't tend to read as much about it. There doesn't there seems to be a huge industry, a little bit like data centers. An awful lot seems to be going on under the surface that you know maybe even people within the industry mightn't be aware of. So, in yeah. terms of controlled environments and the delivery of clean rooms, you know, mm. does that mean you know like talk to us about what that means? Is it sure. more on the medical side or is it uh, yeah, medical? It's a, I suppose it's it's known as cleaner and construction more so, mm-hmm. but we, we decided to opt with the, the root quality and control environments because it spreads across from medical device to, to pharmaceutical to, uh, you know, microelectronics and so on. So it's quite widespread and it's becoming increasingly important for production of food. Um, I suppose with battery operated cars, you're seeing a lot more automotive and so on. So this is a, a very much a growing area and a very strong area in Ireland. Uh, we would have in Ireland, I can't remember the exact stats, but somewhere in the region of, uh, say, seven or eight of the top 10 pharmaceutical companies in the world would be here. We'd have a, a huge uh, quota of medical device companies here. And a lot of them are, uh, you know, Irish made uh, companies that have since been bought out by large international blue chips. So it's it's a very strong space in Ireland, probably one that doesn't get as much focus as shall we say, residential or PRS or the likes. Um, but for us, I suppose, it's certainly built in reputation. It's an area I think a lot of people or a lot of companies, shall I say, are perhaps a little bit afraid of because it is so speciality. It's so service-driven and uh, there's not that many talented people who have the skill set to work in this space. And thankfully, we, we have managed to gain a, a strong team in this area. Yeah, and when when you talk about, you know, medical devices and other mm. such um, offerings, are, are these, would your clients have been impacted in terms of COVID-19, you know, are, are any of them actually providing pandemic responsive solutions? Yes, they are, absolutely. I mean, some of our clients and, uh, you know, obviously uh, a lot of them don't like to be named, which I can understand because uh, mm-hmm. of the, the kind of uh, entries that they are, but they would be working in the manufacture uh, of everything from PPE um, across the country to various medical parts for inhalers and so on. Um, and with some groundbreaking research, uh, a lot of it uh, for the worldwide firms is happening here on this island, which is a wonderful attribute for us to have. Yeah. and But again, because it's something that uh, maybe operates a little bit below the radar in terms mm. of uh, work uh, on foot of COVID-19. I mean, are you starting to see that translate into construction work? Are they sure. starting to expand premises or, or yeah. is it too soon for that? No, we are starting to see it uh, already, certainly with uh, clients of ours who work in the PPE space. um, There's a massive take up there at the moment. And we are beginning to see as well for those who are preparing for manufacture. I suppose there's four or five different uh, vaccine trials ongoing outside there in the market at the moment. But one of the biggest uh, concerns out there is the ability to manufacture and turn this around, considering the population of the world. So um, with so many large pharma firms based in Ireland, they are looking at increasing manufacturing space, some at risk uh, with a view to if they do gain uh, the vaccine manufacturing production, that they will have the space to do it and turn it around very quickly. Okay, and when you say very quickly, because obviously we're listening to international news and they're talking about uh, vaccines being made available, and then you've got one company that's looking to manufacture, is it something like 50 million per month, which sounds unbelievable um, in terms of figures. I mean, realistically, um, in Ireland, are there operations there that are in a position to scale to that level at all? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly there are. You'd you'd be quite surprised uh, to see the the quantity, and it 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 it, it forms a massive part of our uh, net exports. Our medical uh, devices, for one, for example, I think we're one of the largest uh, manufacturer of baby food in the world. By the way, as an example, really? in Ireland, yeah. So you'd be quite surprised with the the quantity of product that we are exporting from Ireland in both uh, pharma. Medtech and even the likes of food from you know uh, kids food across the board. So it it is a specialist area, and I'd be quite surprised when a vaccine does become available if we're not uh, manufacturing quite a bit of it here on these shores. Okay, so then in in the context of the work that you're involved in now, um, dur- during COVID nineteen, when the restrictions hit and particularly the lockdown, mm. um, did you have teams on site on essential construction we projects? We did, yeah. So those projects continue to happen. So at the moment, uh, we have four uh, control environments projects on the ground at the moment, uh, nationwide, uh, th- three on the east coast and one on the west coast, and they continued all throughout the, the, the process because they were essential services. They were for medical device companies who were manufacturing uh, PPE and the likes. So they had to continue. So thankfully, I suppose we were glad to have a certain amount of our projects on the ground throughout that period. Yeah, but I, I suppose and if we if we look to a different sector altogether in, in mm. towards the residential, uh, yeah. were you involved in any essential projects on the residential side of things? We sure were, yeah. There were uh, two of our projects, I suppose, that were very close to completion. Um, one in County Kildare, uh, for Kildare County Council, and one up in Santry, uh, where we were uh, delivering uh, apartments for one of the approved housing bodies. And I suppose they were that close to, to fruition to being completed that we were asked to get back on site. So they were two of the selected projects to, to be completed uh, throughout that lockdown period. Uh, mind you, I suppose, you know, because they were so close to being completed, uh, the numbers on the ground were, were very, very minimal. So the risk was, was quite low. OK, well, actually, now that you've brought us to the topic of risk, obviously, uh, we see that most sites are operational, but maybe not to full capacity. I, sure. And I understand this might vary um, across the country, but in terms of capacity on, on individual sites, where do you think your, your operating level is up to at this point? Well, I would say it's what's realising on the far side is I'd say a lot of programmes are being pushed out by anywhere between 15 and 20 percent on the back of uh, the, 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 the loss of productivity. I mean, inevitably, when you put in place the, the standard operating procedures and the increased manpower to deal with the, you know, managing the COVID situation, well, to deal with the property, at least, I mean, if you're following proper SOPs, it does delay works. Uh, every process has to be reviewed. People can't just walk on site willy-nilly in the morning uh, or exit site willy-nilly either. I mean, every single person has to be accounted for, has to be uh, inducted and has to be safe to work on site and understand the PPE requirements. So I would say on average, programs are probably being hit by anywhere between 15 and 20 percent for us. Well, and that's well below um, the national industry standard that we saw just over the last number of days reported where um, it, it put actually productivity losses on foot of the pandemic at uh, upwards of 40% and amongst the worst in Europe. Uh, and that was something that was forecast. And obviously, uh, when it was forecast two and three months ago, we hoped that it would be overly pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And as it transpires, it wasn't. I mean, contrary, or I suppose to con- contrast that with the experience of Townmore, sure. were you surprised to see those figures of 40 plus percent productivity losses? Quite surprised. I mean, look, I suppose it depends on the timing. I think that report was up until June, Carol. So 
there's a bit of getting used to the new uh, process and getting adjusting to the criteria. We were very, very pleasantly surprised uh, with our supply chain, with how well uh, they changed their processes to, I suppose, work in bubbles and work in hubs to make uh, life safer on site. Um, everybody seemed to, I suppose, because many of these workers were at home for seven weeks, they were chomping at the bit to get back to work and were willing to really listen and adhere to protocols. So, like, I was surprised with the quantum that was discussed. I know that probably factors in as well, uh, a quantity of work that has fallen away, such as a lot of hospitality projects have just lost all momentum or been put on mm-hmm. hold uh, in, the, in the short to medium term as well. So that's going to have had an effect. But I think, by and large, construction has come out of this very favorably. We were, we were one of the first uh, sectors back to work. Uh, I know there's been some notable cases in Dublin. I think the first few cases were always going to be quite notable, but I think the reaction of construction companies has been very admirable and how we have dealt with this whole pandemic has been very admirable as well. Yeah, no, look, you're absolutely right. And I think the instances of um, infection on site, when you look at the cross-section, that, that there was an absolute inevitability about sure. that. Um, but uh, right now, how many projects or how many sites would Townmore have around the country? Uh, we have somewhere in the region of uh, 13 projects across the country, including controlled environments. So like we're, we're working, I suppose, quite nationally, everywhere from Galway to Dublin, most counties uh, in Munster and uh, quite a few in Leinster. So I think we're, we're probably across maybe about 10 or 11 counties at the moment. Um, okay, that that's a huge uh, geographical spread as well. Mm. So, have you had many instances of infection on site? No, we've had zero so far, thankfully. Um, zero. Zero. Uh, so that's far. amazing. So, well, look, we're, we've been quite fortunate in that regard. I mean, we did have the discussion uh, when we did recommence works with regard to enforcing the protocols, enforcing the the, the SOPs, and I suppose, look, every company has to treat it as a situation of when as opposed to if because of the course reality is if you have four or five hundred people working nationwide across so many counties the likelihood is very strong that you will contract a case at some stage and there's no point in deciding then how you're going to react you have to have everything prepared as if it's going to happen so that you know and we we, we put a lot of work into doing that whereby if a case arises on any of our sites tomorrow we know exactly how we're going to react we have all the supply chain in place for demisting etc so we can react quickly, accurately, and make sure that everyone's safe. So, okay. And, you know, I, I, you kind of touched on it there in terms of the geographical spread, but Townmore is uh, genuinely a nationwide business yes. because you're headquartered in Offaly. Tullamore, yeah. And you're, of course, sorry, you're headquartered in Offaly. And then, of course, you're based, you have offices in Cork and Dublin. Um, But in terms of your teams, because you're spread across the country, you know, from a logistical point of view, how are you managing that? Uh, Say in terms of people sharing, uh, driving together, people sharing vans, how are you managing when you're bringing teams across 11 counties? Yeah, well, I suppose we're we're fortunate enough as a main contractor, like most main contractors in the modern age, uh, you're largely a management contractor and you're managing uh, supply chain. So really, I suppose for our projects, typical projects, you might have a, a project manager, a site engineer, and QS, whatever else. They typically all uh, travel independently anyway. So we wouldn't have any sharing of vehicles. We have no need to have sharing of vehicles for one. And look, we, we put in the, the, the additional welfare facilities on each site, 
Um, we try and stagger breaks. We try and get, uh, I suppose, supply chain to work in, in bubbles. So if we are hit with an infection that you'd hope that it hasn't spread uh, quite strongly across the site, that it's, it's, it's kept to a, a small amount of people. But we're not having a, a great deal of issue with managing things in that regard. We're, we're fortunate our, our, with our headquarters being in Tullamore, we have very quick access to all of the country. So, I mean, Dublin's an hour, Galway's an hour, Limerick's an hour, and Cork's about maybe an hour and 50. So everywhere is pretty accessible for our teams to get around. Okay, and obviously um, you would be, well, Townmore would be a firm that embraced technology from the off. So sure. obviously that gives you, uh, I suppose, a natural advantage in the current marketplace and in the under um, the, the restrictions that we've had over the past number of months. Obviously, yeah. there's been traditional firms that have struggled to try um, adapt to new technologies and to try buy in and and. Uh, access training on new technologies, whereas you were perhaps operating these as standards. But in terms of how things have changed and, how, you know, looking ahead for Townmore, um, where we are at the moment, obviously, it's very difficult to predict, you know, if there is likely to be further further restrictions. Sure. But in terms of the plan for Townmore and the pipeline of work, do you know at this stage how the pipeline for, of work for 2020 is likely to be impacted? Yeah, I do. I mean, look, we've been negatively impacted in certain sectors, uh, such as hospitality, uh, mm -hmm. which was unsurprising. Uh, and, you know, you can't blame the clients in that regard. They've, they've suffered a huge amount. Um, but uh, thankfully, I suppose, workload-wise, we are looking very healthy uh, going into the Q4 of 2020 and into 2021 as well. Our workload is 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 pretty solid at the moment. In fact, we're, we're currently maybe one of the fewer companies out there looking for quite a deal of uh, new staff to come on board from project managers to building service engineers and so on with new You're work. currently recruiting. We are indeed, yeah. We are. We're currently growing, I suppose, again, uh, which is positive and we're recruiting uh, a number of roles there. And uh, we, we have managed to gain a couple of new, I suppose, uh, important clients, which we're looking forward to impressing upon with our abilities. So it's, uh, we're, I, I suppose I can safely say we're, we're kind of in a, in a good, strong, positive space at the moment. Uh, as a as a growing company with new work coming on board and a solid pipeline ahead. So. Okay. Well, look, th that's obviously a great thing, and it's a, it's a positive thing for the industry. And you know, earlier in the show, we were discussing um, we were discussing the report by the Irish Home Builders Association, and that report was calling for uh, the delivery of thirty six thousand new homes annually over the sure. next two decades. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, that looks very difficult when we see the expectations for delivery in 2020 being knocked back to somewhere around 16,000. You know, in terms of, you know, from somebody within the industry, do you think that the Irish industry has the capacity to scale up the way it needs to, to be able to deliver those those level of homes? Uh, I do think so. I, I, I think uh, with with the help of, I suppose, the, the housing bodies, whom I think have performed very, very strongly in terms of delivery, um, and the local authorities have, have really, uh, you know, had a lot of faith in them of late. So, I mean, we're working across the board with Clued and Respond, etc. Uh, we're also working with the Irish Institutional Property uh, Funds as well, whom are doing a, a very important job of delivering, I suppose, particularly in the eastern region. So the desire is there. Um, I think that the, the funding is there. And I think the, the contractors are more than willing to build, given the opportunity. I suppose a lot of public works have been tied up in bureaucracy and delays and have been a, a little bit slow. But I think there has been a more concerted effort by the government in, in the last year or two to, to kind of 
speed up and refine the process. And we're seeing the introduction of more frameworks and that that open up the opportunity. So certainly I do think their capacity is there. I think the, the appetite is there. I mean, you, when you look at the, the quantity of houses we were building pre-recession, albeit it's a very different environment now with VCAR, COVID thrown in there for, for good measure. Uh, it's a lot more challenging an environment. But I mean, we have to also think there's a, a hell of a lot of Irish abroad whom are still probably keen to come home if they feel the economy is in a, a strong, stable space. So I, I certainly think capacity is there and the, the willingness is there if we can kind of cut through a bit of the bureaucracy and, and become more efficient in our delivery. I suppose you, you can couple that up as well with offsite delivery methodologies, which are being introduced uh, a little bit more now, which are speeding up production on the ground. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a space I suppose we're uh, investing a lot of our time in of late is to try and introduce offsite methodologies to make things uh, quicker, more efficient, better quality, etc. So I'd be very, very confident that we can up our uh, turnaround to the required levels uh, over the next 20 years to reach for 2040. Okay, that's encouraging. Thank you, Mark. And just finally, before we let you go, you mentioned there that you are recruiting uh, for current roles around the country. So yeah. obviously we know that there's people um, who have lost their jobs in this industry over the past number of months. So you might just remind people of what roles are available and where they can access information about those. Sure, yeah. So we're currently looking for project managers, country surveyors, building service engineers, health and safety uh, people as well. And uh, all of our roles are advertised on our website, which is just uh, townmore.ie. Uh, there's a careers page there that you can go and click through and understand what the role is involved. And look, we're, we're very keen to build upon our team uh, with, with the right people. And I suppose there are people in fortune position that have been let go on the back of this. And we'd be more than willing to speak to them and, and see if we can uh, strike up a relationship and, and, and get working together. That's great. Thank you so much. That was Mark Cronin, Associate Director of Townmore. My thanks again for joining us on Property Matters today. That's it for this week. Um, again, you can get in touch with the show on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks as always to Peter Rice on Sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Tallon and all the team here. Stay safe.